Testament that's called being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and we learn more and more for our whole lives how to follow him more. But here's the cool thing. As we begin following Jesus, he not only draws us closer to himself, he not only changes us, he not only enhances our personal relationship with him, he then takes us and puts us on mission. He puts us on mission. Jesus actually says, I'm now going to take you and not only change your life, I'm going to make you part of my mission to change the lives of other people. And so as we go out and connect with people, while we're still learning to follow Jesus, we help other people learn what it means to follow Jesus. And we do that by inviting people over for dinner, inviting them out for coffee. Sometimes we do it by putting on a big water ski camp and giving a week of our summer to invest in some young people. We do it in so many different ways so that people can come to know who Jesus is. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a church. That's what we've been seeing as we study together the New Testament book of Acts. And so we want to turn our attention to God's word right now. Just a a quick note on our um, kind of plan for these next, uh, the rest of the summer. We're going to wrap up our series in the New Testament book of Acts next Sunday. So we've got this morning and then next Sunday will be the last. We'll look at chapters uh, 25 and 26 today and then the last two chapters, 27 and 28 next week as we sort of recap uh, the entire book of Acts. And then what we're going to do is spend um, four or five Sundays kind of wrapping up the summer just by soaking ourselves in some of the Psalms from the Old Testament. We're just going to let some of God's beautiful and vast um, worship music that touches on so many different emotions and experiences just kind of soak together in the Psalms to finish out the summer and get ourselves ready to launch a new year of ministry. So that's a little bit about where we're headed over the next month or two on Sunday mornings. The book of Acts is a part of the Bible that, that both describes and demonstrates the mission of the local church. Like, what, what a church like Harvest, what it even is, what it's here for, what it's doing, what it's supposed to be doing. That's very helpful for us as we look at kind of launching a new ministry year, it's kind of a school year, as, as we look at kind of launching a new ministry year in kind of an environment that's a little bit different than the last few Septembers have been for the last 5, 10, 20, 50 years, Right? Um, we're all kind of coming into some sort of post-pandemic new normal, whatever exactly that's going to mean, and that's still, I think, yet to be determined. But God's mission for us has not changed. Our environment has changed. It continues to change. Our mission is still the same. And so in these last couple of Sundays in Acts, we're going to look at what it means to be on mission with God from the Bible. Today, the emphasis will be a little bit more on us as individual followers of Jesus. How do we get and live our lives on mission with God? And next week, as we wrap it up, we'll look at the same thing from a bit of a different angle. How do we stay and, and engage in mission together as a church? Because we not only follow Jesus alone as individuals, we follow him together as a church family. Jesus' plan was to make uh, disciples, again, that's the Bible's word for it, it just means followers, uh, people who have devoted their lives to him. His plan was to make disciples by starting a network of local churches, just like this one, that would spread all over the world. And they would proclaim his word, his message, in the power of his spirit. That's the plan. That is God's plan. On the one hand, it is deceptively simple. 
that he wants to start a network of local churches who would proclaim his message in the power of his spirit. And that's how he's going to make more disciples. What we've seen in the book of Acts is that those, those churches, the first ones in history that started, they existed in a world where they were poorly understood, they were marginalized, and they were not really very well resourced. And yet, despite these headwinds, God used that network of local church congregations to start a revolution that is still going strong 2,000 years later. Human history has seen nothing like it. We can learn a lot about what it means to carry on Jesus' work by seeing how they did it. And so our message today that we're going to see from Acts, particularly chapter 26, is that both for them it was true in the first century and for us today in the 21st century, our turbulent world needs Christians who are anchored in God's unshakable mission. That's what we're going to see in this text this morning. This turbulent world where so much is going in so many different directions desperately needs Christians, followers of Jesus, who are actually anchored in his mission in the way that they live out their lives. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn them to Acts chapter 25. We're looking at 25 and mostly 26 today. New Testament book of Acts chapter 25. Let me actually briefly kind of summarize uh, the narrative and the events of chapter 25. That's going to set us up for our our main uh, part of scripture that you heard read earlier for us in Acts chapter 26. To to summarize this account um, quickly and maybe effectively, it's it's helpful to, to recognize that our attention is going to be called to three sort of main characters three players and they all have these like two of them have these cool like first century roman names festus which always makes me think of like the adams family like i don't know it's weird but anyway that was his name right and uh, and agrippa or herod agrippa and then of course our third um character the main character is the apostle paul whose story we've been following in these chapters for some time now let me start with the last guy the apostle paul if you're new to this story or to this narrative in the book of acts Uh, Paul was at one point an anti-Christian Jewish leader. That is, he he was a leader and a scholar in the Jewish faith in the first century. And he was dead set against Christianity, which was brand new at that time because he saw it as, a, as an offshoot. He saw it as like a sect, um, a cult, a, a false religion that would lead people away from the Old Testament. And so he, he actively um, and aggressively and even violently um, prosecuted and persecuted Christianity. Now, though, he was radically converted by Jesus. We saw that clear back in Acts chapter 9. And he now serves Jesus. And his former compatriots, his fellow Jewish religious leaders, um, are now out to kill him because he's even worse than the original Christians where they see him as not only now a Christian but a traitor to the cause. And so they're literally out for his blood. That forms a lot of the narrative thrust of what's happening here. Now, the Roman leader at the time kept him in protective custody. That's kind of where we left him last week. The Romans, he was under Roman arrest, which was good because it protected him from the Jewish people who wanted to kill him, but he's actually under arrest. And uh, unfortunately, despite not being convicted of any crime, Paul languished in custody for two whole years until a new leader arrives at the scene. That brings us up to today. 
The guy that was holding him gets succeeded by a new guy, Festus, our friend was his name. And he's sort of the governor of this region representing the Roman Caesar. Rome is in charge of the world at this point. The new guy sort of uses the Apostle Paul as a political football. <laughs> uh, he inherits this guy. He's the Roman governor over this Jewish people, and his job is to like, keep the peace, and so he's looking for ways to ingratiate himself to the Jewish leadership. And he's like, oh, you, I, my, my um, predecessor was holding this guy in prison, and you guys won his head, and, and yet I can't really turn him over to you. And so he actually at one point threatens to kind of send Paul back to Jerusalem where Paul knows he's going to get killed. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute. For two years, Roman arrest has kept me safe from Jerusalem and now you're almost threatening to send me back there. And so Paul formally appeals his case to Caesar, to the Roman emperor. Apparently that was a legal right they had back then as Roman citizens. That now means Festus is legally bound to send Paul not to Jerusalem but to Rome. Now, last bit, before Paul departs for Rome, another leader, King Herod Agrippa, another uh, guy that Festus is sort of going to cooperate with, shows up on a diplomatic tour of sorts. Uh, he's just recently gotten into his position where he is sort of a king over this region and he's going to work in conjunction with the Roman governors. And so he's touring the, the area. He's coming in with all of his pomp and his circumstance. He's looking at his new um, region and he's showing off himself and his power. And he's meeting all of the other Roman governors in the area. He arrives. He hears about Paul's situation. And being somewhat interested in the Bible, he says to Festus, hey, this, this Paul guy that you've had in prison for a while and you're now about to send to Rome, his case sounds really interesting. I'd like to meet him myself. Festus is looking to ingratiate himself to Agrippa, and he says, hey, great, no problem. So that sets up where we're at today. And a formal gathering full of pomp and ceremony, it's not really a legal trial, but once again, the Apostle Paul is pulled out of the place where he's being held. He's bound in chains, and he is paraded before Festus and Agrippa, these two Roman leaders, and he is asked to explain himself. And why is it your Jewish compatriots want to kill you so bad when we can't see that you've done anything deserving death? That sets up chapter 26, where we're going to be this morning. Paul begins by explaining standing in chains before Festus and Agrippa, these two leaders, how he used to violently oppose Jesus, but Jesus radically converted him. If you're in Acts chapter 26, that's where we're going to pick up this morning. He starts recounting the story in verse 14. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, it's hard for you to resist what God is really wanting you to do, but that's what you've been doing. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Notice this. This is, this is Jesus speaking from heaven to the Apostle Paul. Rise, verse 15, and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things that you have seen, to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. Let's stop right there. That, 
that verse neatly frames everything that the Apostle Paul's life has done. There, there are two rails, so to speak, that Jesus announces in this one verse, verse 15. And for the rest of the Apostle Paul's life, it like runs on those two rails like a train running down the track. Jesus called Paul to be a servant and a witness. He was on Christ's mission. Now you're going to serve my purposes and you are going to explain to people who I am and what I do. That's the mission. It's helpful to understand what Paul tells Festus and Agrippa along those two points. So let's look at each of them in turn through the rest of this chapter, verse 20, uh, chapter 26. First, Paul is a servant. Secondly, he's a witness. As a servant of Christ, what Paul is saying there is that Jesus changed my life's trajectory, my purpose, my mission. It was very clear before this encounter, this miraculous encounter with Jesus. I was very clear about what I was doing, what I was living for. I was making my own choices and I was doing actually what I thought God wanted me to do until God himself shows up, slaps me upside the head and says, no, you're wrong. You're kicking against where I'm sending you. You got to get now on my purpose. You see, once again, when Jesus saves a person, when God transforms a person's life, he doesn't just improve their life. He doesn't just forgive their sin. He doesn't just help them come into relationship with him, although all those things are true. He then takes that person and he puts them on mission. Your life was bought, Jesus says, with a price. It's now mine. And I'm going to put it to use for my purposes to help other people have the same experience. You see in this entire narrative, this whole idea that Paul's life was mission-driven. Maybe nowhere more prominently than the fact that he is in chains this entire time. As he is standing here and he uh, begins to kind of give his own defense uh, all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 26 it says that Paul stretched out his hand and began to make his defense his hands were shackled and manacled at that point Uh, it's very clear at the end of the uh, the chapter he even says I I wish that all of you might become such as I am except for these chains he's still a prisoner he's literally bound in chains and and you remember like how did he get here he chose this He chose this. If you've been following along in the narrative, clear back in chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, he was told that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested. Now behold, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, in other words, God is telling me, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, only if I may finish my course and the ministry, the mission that I received from the Lord Jesus. He knew he was going to be arrested and he could have avoided it by just not going to Jerusalem in the first place. He chose chains. Why did he do that? Because Jesus put him on mission. He is still in chains. And what's more, he chose to remain in chains when he chose to appeal his case to Caesar. Now that was from the previous chapter. We already saw that. 
He chose to appeal his case to Caesar, which meant he was going to stay in Roman custody until he was shipped to the capital city of Rome to be tried there. He was choosing to remain in custody. Uh, let me have us drop down to the very, very end of this passage, the end of verse, uh, chapter 26. The very last verse, verse 32. Notice this interesting statement. After the whole thing was done, King Agrippa said to Festus, this man, uh, sorry, let me back up one verse, verse 31. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. They've got no legal basis to hold him. So then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, that's interesting. He's in prison, and he could have gotten out of prison. He could have been set free to go serve God wherever he wanted to, right? If he hadn't made this legal appeal to Caesar. So, did the Apostle Paul make a mistake by appealing to Caesar? Should he not have done that? Like, like why, is that, why is that statement there in the Bible? Why does God want us to know that Agrippa, this guy with authority, says, this guy could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar, but he's appealed to Caesar. We, have to, we can't free him now. We have to send him off to Rome. Why is that there? Are we supposed to conclude that the Apostle Paul made a mistake? Dude, you could have been free. You shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. He chose chains. He's in chains. He chose to remain in chains. Why? Let's tell you, I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think that verse 32 is in the Bible so that we will understand that Paul made a tactical error. I think it's so that we will see how mission-focused this guy was. Jesus had told him to get out of Jerusalem and go to Rome. Chapter 23, verse 11. The Jews in Jerusalem were trying to kill him and getting arrested by the Romans is how his life was spared. That's how he got out of Jerusalem. But now he's stuck. He's been stuck for two years and Roman officials are threatening to send him back to Jerusalem and so his legal appeal guaranteed that he would finish the journey to Rome. Here's a guy who's going, Jesus told me to go to Rome and share the gospel. I'm going to get to Rome. I don't care if I have to do it on a chain gang. I got to do whatever it takes to get to Rome. That's what's important to me. Not my freedom, not my reputation. This is a picture of a man on a mission. He's sent by Jesus. Everything that's happening to him is captivated by the question of how do I do the Lord's will? And the Lord's will was really clear. He was to make disciples by proclaiming God's word. So that's one of the core convictions that has been driving our, our staff and our elder team these last few months as we have been thinking and praying and reading together about like, God, what kind of a church do you want us to be coming into this fall? How do we as a church be more effective at making more disciples of Jesus? That's what you've called us to do. So why do we do that? Why do we make disciples? We see it illustrated beautifully here because Jesus has recruited us to participate in the single greatest goal in the history of the world. Bringing people from death and darkness into light and life by becoming followers of Christ. To be a Christian means that your life was bought with a price, the price of Jesus' own blood. Your life is not your own anymore. It's for something. It is for his glory. Let's be a little bit more practical. What does that mean? 
That means that everything that's going on in my life is always cast in light of a specific question. How can I grow closer to Jesus in this and help others do the same? Because that's what he's called me to do. That's what he's called every one of his followers to do. How can I grow closer to him and help others do the same? That question starts to permeate the daily experience of a person whose life is on Christ's mission. The beauty of that mission that Jesus gives us is that you know who you are, you know why you get up every day, and you know why your life matters. That's the beauty of being on Christ's mission. See, for me, it's when I lose sight of being on Jesus' mission, which happens more than I would wish it does. That's when I get frustrated and discontent and discouraged because things aren't going the way I want them to go. I can start assuming, you know, lesser missions. We all do it. Like pleasing people. How can I make sure that everybody around me is happy with me? Ever tried to do that? Yes. (laughs) Who hasn't? Ever succeeded? Not for long. Not for long. If your mission every day, whether you think of it this way or not, if your mission every day when you get up is to make sure that the people around you are happy with you, you're in for trouble sooner or later because some people's expectations are really hard to read, aren't they? I thought I was doing what would make that person happy, but they're still unhappy. Other times, people's expectations change. Maybe that did make them happy before and it doesn't now. It's like this endless treadmill of people-pleasing rather than God-pleasing. On the other hand, I could say, well, so forget that. Forget other people. This is maybe a little bit more of a popular way of thinking today in America. Forget other people. You can't please other people. You shouldn't try. You need to please yourself. Forget other people. Please yourself. Be you. Set your own goals. Set your own agenda. Achieve that and don't worry about anybody else. Well, it's definitely true that we can't always please other people. But often if you get on this, I'm going to please myself agenda, many people find that that's a pretty, maybe even surprisingly, it's kind of an endless treadmill as well. You can cast about for a long time going through purpose after purpose, trying to seek one that will satisfy. Constantly trying to live up to my own expectations of what I think I should be. And then even if I get it, often there's these niggling doubts of, was that enough? Should I do more? This too can be a treadmill. The point is, the great thing about serving Christ's purpose is that unlike any other life mission you could pursue, Jesus' mission is what you were actually made for. It's what you were made for. The guy that designed the car has given you the owner's manual. The guy that designed your life is giving you the reason he designed you. It's to grow closer to me and serve my purpose giving my ultimate service to Christ rather than to other people or myself is the only purpose that holds out the promise of eternal satisfaction. It's the only kind of satisfaction that will sustain you even when life is hard. I think that's what's being illustrated here. It would have been so easy for the Apostle Paul to say, man, I'm in chains. What can I do to get out of them? Who wants to be in chains? (laughs) Well, he didn't particularly like captivity either for its own sake. But he's totally willing to do that if it gets him on mission. He knew where Jesus wanted him to go and he knew what Jesus wanted him to do. Do you know where Jesus wants you to go? 
Christian, do you know what Jesus wants you to do? It's right here. It's right here. Go be a follower of mine who invests him or herself in making other followers. Let's get really practical here for just a minute. Like, what is all this mission thinking? Like, when, when it comes down to real kind of brass tacks, real life, boots on the ground, what does this potentially look like? Take challenges. For Paul, it's incarceration. It's arrest, right? He's not really in control of his political or legal future. What about you? You face a tough situation. A loss, a letdown, <laughs> anything. Here's a question. Here's how this mission, being on Jesus' mission thinking can reframe how I approach that. Could the challenge that I'm facing right now, the hardest thing in my life right now as a follower of Jesus, could it be there in part to bring me closer to God? Could that be part of God's purposes in this? This passage contains one important way that that happens. How do I get closer to God? And it's not just gritting my teeth and praying for emergency prayers of relief and gutting through it. (laughs) It's actually finding uh, promises of God and clinging fiercely to those promises. Once again, the Apostle Paul here isn't just randomly incarcerated. He knows Jesus sent him to Rome, go be my witness. Paul knew who he was in Jesus. He knew what he was supposed to do for Jesus. That's what reframed his perspective. And so everything goes under that heading. Friends, one thing we've seen very clearly, why are we about making disciples? Because this is what Jesus has called us to do. How can I become closer to Christ myself? Now, if we want to break that down even more, which we should, like the Bible is God's message. This is our surest place to go when we want to hear from God. So the question would be, what words from the Bible, what truths or what promises pertain to my challenging circumstance right now? If I don't know the answer to that question, is there another Christian I can talk to about that? What does God's word say that directly pertains to this situation? Once I've got that promise, How can I hold fast to it with other brothers and sisters in Christ to get to know God better in the midst of this? You go through a process of discovery like that, you come out of a hard time realizing I am so much closer to God than I would have been without the pain. How could a hard thing bring us closer to God? Or another question. Is it possible I'm in a tough spot in order to help another Christian get closer to God? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, the Bible says, the Apostle Paul, same guy that we're reading about here, wrote this. He says, a lot of times we go through really difficult stuff. God meets us and sustains us in that so that we can turn around and give that same comfort to other people. It may well be that God has you in a challenging place precisely so that you will learn to lean on him more so that you can help another Christian do that. And when we understand our whole mission is to help other people come to know Christ better, suddenly we're asking God, how can you use this to help in me to help another person? Experience is a powerful source of empathy. Empathy is in turn a powerful motivator for making space for other people in my life. 
Have you ever noticed that it's often people who go through difficult things that want to go become counselors? It's often people who know what it's like to recover from alcoholism that want to be there for the guy that's struggling with alcoholism, right? Because we've been there. We know it. God says, as you have learned to follow me, you get a heart for helping other people follow me. That's my call in your life. How could a tough time help me get closer to God? How could it help me help another person get closer to God? Maybe one more question. How could it help me introduce another person to God? How could it help me introduce another person to God? Is it, is it possible I'm in a tough spot in order to share the gospel with somebody that I wouldn't have crossed paths with otherwise? To help someone who hasn't experienced new life in Christ see the new life in action and learn how it can become theirs. In every case, the power for change comes from grabbing God's word, holding on to it desperately and helping other people see Jesus as we tell them who he is and what he has said. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here. He uses his tough time to be a mission-focused man who then presents the gospel. He, he knew he was a servant. He was on mission. How can you be on Christ's mission right now in your life? That leads us to the, the second point, the fact that he shared the gospel. He was also Christ's witness. Most of the rest of chapter 26 is an explanation of how Festus and Agrippa and everybody else listening to him could find the same eternal life in Christ that he found. And briefly, this is how the Apostle Paul shared the gospel with them. How can you guys understand that you can connect with God and get on his mission as well? First, and this is a model for us, as we look to communicate the truths of Scripture, the beauty of the gospel to other people. First, he tells them to, to see God's promise to save you, to see the promise that God made to save you. You're still in Acts chapter 26, look at verse 22. He says, To this day I have the help that comes from God, and I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. The prophets and Moses are his way of saying, that's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. This whole thing, this hope that we have in Christ started with a promise of God. He promised to save us. He's an initiator. Finding real life in Christ starts with believing this, that God wants to save you. If you're here this morning trying to figure God out, do you believe that? Some people understand God as a loving God and then have no problem believing that God wants to save them, but other people really struggle with that. God, my background, if God is there, he should know who I am. He should know what I've done. And deep down inside, we can find it really hard to believe that God wants to save us. But he's promised. And that promise goes way back before you ever committed a sin that he would save sinners. It's all rooted in his promise. And even if we're followers of Christ already, this doesn't change. This doesn't change. Everything that we do to follow God is rooted in his promise. He is the initiator. He is the pursuer. Which leads us to understanding that he also kept that promise and he kept it in Christ. Down in verse, uh, sorry, back in verse 18. Jesus still commissioning uh, the Apostle Paul. 
sending him out. He says, I'm going to send you to open up the eyes of people so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, Jesus says, that's your mission. Show people how they can have a seat at my table. Show people how they can have a place with me and it happens when you trust in what I have done, when you're sanctified by faith and trust in me. The death of Jesus is the only way that our sin can be killed. It's the only way. And that's a message we never outgrow. If you're here for the first time trying to figure Jesus out, that's the message you need to hear. There's sin in your life that keeps you from God and the Bible says the only way, the only cure for that sin is Jesus. And guess what? If you've been knowing and loving and walking with Jesus for 50 years, you need the same message. There's still sin in our life. And the only cure for that sin is Christ. There's always a temptation to work hard, to clean ourselves up for God. To say maybe, man, I should be a Christian who's more on mission. I need to work on that. (laughs) I'm going to fix it for God, right? It's a very easy and subtle trap to fall into. But rather, the good news of Jesus shapes the whole way we live our lives. We recognize where we're not living for Jesus and we call it out for the sin that it is. We bring that to him. We bring that to him. And he takes care of it through his death and his resurrection. That's the third thing that Paul made clear to them. God promised it. Jesus is the answer to the promise. How does that work? Because he died in our place. You see this in verse 23. As he's standing there and explaining, um, in the Bible it says that the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Savior, that's what that word means, the Savior must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, that he would proclaim light both to our people, Jewish people, and to the Gentiles, in other words, to everybody. The Savior that God sends is going to save by suffering, dying, and then rising from the dead. The death of Jesus is the only way our sin can be killed. The resurrection is the only way a new and better life can take its place. And if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not a follower of Jesus alike, that is God's good news for us today. There's only one way to kill the cancer of sin in my soul by receiving rather than rejecting Jesus' payment for my sin on the cross. There's only one way to experience a new and better life by receiving rather than rejecting the power of God's spirit to enter in and give you a new life. How does all of this work? How does all of this work? That's where he lands in the last point. We need to receive that by what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Verse 20. He says, I've declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance and faith are always the response to God's initiating, sin-cleansing work. Repentance is a Bible's way of saying we we turn away from an old, self-reliant, sinful life. Faith means that I bank everything on the idea that Jesus will be true to his word. And whether I'm getting to know Jesus for the first time or I've been walking with him for 50 plus years, repentance and faith are like breathing for a Christian. That's how the life of following God works. 
in order to repent, I've got to know what my sin is. I need to identify what God calls my sin so that I can bring it to him and confess it. Look, if I'm going to turn away from something, what am I turning away from? What am I turning away from? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're, you've not yet begun a saving relationship with Jesus, that's an important question. Is it turning away from living for myself? Seeking fulfillment in what? Whatever it is for you. Whatever it is other than God. If that's you, then a life with God begins by saying, God, I've been seeking fulfillment totally apart from you. That is sin, and I want to do away with that. I want to find my greatest joy in you. Would you forgive me for my sin? And to my fellow Christians, may I urge us to recognize that pattern never goes away. The issue is never just like, you know, I, I should do more Bible reading. I should do more prayer. I should get more on mission with God. Probably all true statements. Here's the question. Why am I not? Why am I not? What is the sin that is still in my life? Am I willing to identify that, allow the Holy Spirit of God to help me identify my sin is this. That's what keeps me from reading my Bible or praying more or doing whatever it is I know I should do. What is the sin underneath it? It's only when I identify what I'm turning from that I'm actively repenting, that I can say, God, I'm I'm done with that. I'm done seeking joy in lesser things. But turning away is only half the story. It's this turning toward idea. The the Bible's word for that is faith. It just means like, I'm going to turn and trust that Jesus will be true to his word. I'm going to trust that he will be true to his word. So if I'm confessing my sins to him for the very first time and saying, Jesus, forgive me, he promises if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the Bible. You will be saved. So that if I confess my sins to Jesus and I die, he will embrace me and I will go into heaven. I'm going to trust that he will be true to his word and I'm now going to live that pattern. That's what the Bible meant when it said acting or or living in a way that's consistent with my repentance. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for Jesus, trusting that he's right. And once again, that pattern never goes away. Christian, this is how we continue to grow deeper with God. As we identify those sins, confess them to him and and pray for the cleansing, we then turn and trust that he's going to be true to his word. So once again, what word am I holding on to? What word am I holding on to? What promises in scripture can I cling to with desperation? For example, maybe I realize I'm not praying and relying on God as much as I should. And maybe the root sin is because I'm too busy on social media or running and finding my joy and fulfillment in other things. What is the root sin? Hmm, maybe the root sin is that I'm seeking fulfillment in a lesser idol that I should only be finding in God. What does repenting look like? God, forgive me for that sin. I know this will never satisfy. Only you can satisfy And then maybe I switch off the phone for 10 minutes a day or whatever and I start acting in accordance with that that repentance. But you see, this is not just a duty thing. Faith means I'm trusting that God will come through on his word, on his promise. For example, a promise like Psalm 1611 that tells me that 
In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a biblical statement of truth and fact. I can memorize that psalm. I can pray it. I can say, God, I'm going to act as if that's true because I believe it is, and I'm going to trust that you're going to come through on that. I'm not just dutifully going through a religious obligation. I am abandoning my desire to seek fulfillment elsewhere, and I am trusting that you're going to come through on your word. Repentance and faith, confessing a sin, embracing Jesus, this is how we come to know him better. This is how we teach other people to come to know him better. We simply show them who he is from his word. And it all goes back to knowing what God has said here. How can I desperately cling to him as he has presented himself in the pages of the Bible? The Apostle Paul was a servant of Christ and a witness. He was on mission to show people who Jesus is. He lived a long time ago. He had a specific commission to go to a city but the mission is still the same. God may not be telling you to go to Rome, although for some of us, we're like, hey, that sounds cool. I'll take a week in Rome, right on, praise God. But the mission is the same. God has called every person to enter into a relationship with him and experience the joy of salvation and then get on mission helping other people do the same. The world has always been a chaotic, crazy, and heartbreaking place to live. It's no exception today. But in the midst of life's craziness, friends, people are running to all sorts of things to try to find hope and purpose. But all the possible answers that we can come up with will let us down. Except the answer that God gives us. We will only find life and joy by becoming disciples of Jesus who help other people become disciples of Jesus. That's the Bible's message. Our turbulent world needs Christians who are anchored in God's unshakable mission. How can we get on God's mission together today and help one another do that as well? That's what it means to be part of a church family. I want to ask the worship team to come back up here and lead us in song. And as they do, can I invite you to just take a moment of quiet reflection and prayer with me? I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable doing it, to close your eyes. Um, The only purpose behind that is just to sort of block out distractions for just a moment. And take a moment, just a few seconds here of of silence, and then I'll pray in a second. But but during these few seconds of quiet, um, where Bruce will just be playing lightly in the background, um, just take a moment to, to dare to pray, God, would you show me how I can cling more deeply to your promises, how I can be on mission with you, how I can come to faith in you for the first time and find purpose in you. Just open yourself up to how God would lead you in that and ask him to show you how you need to respond to him. Take a few seconds and do that and then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Holy Father, the picture you paint for us of your son Jesus and what he did, the picture you paint in the Bible is astounding. He came, he lived, 
He suffered, he died, he rose from the dead that we might know life and purpose. Such a great cost to you to accomplish our redemption and we benefit by your grace and for your glory. God, I pray that that would become the experienced reality for each and every one of us here this morning. That you would meet each of us where we are at. That you would draw us into your purposes for us to follow you, to know you, and show us how we can help others do the same. And I pray that we would experience that joy. Joy that leads to and points to your glory. So God, as we sing now as a church in response, would you lead us, would you fill us, would you show yourself to us more clearly and give us the heart to lead lesser things and run more hard after you. It's for our good and your glory we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.